Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's begin our conversation, and uh, we're privileged to have him back with us, the ambassador, the Israeli ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Ido Moed, joins us on The Roy Green Show. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Roy. Would you give us, uh, please, a status of the war? I just mentioned that the the activities on the ground have increased in Gaza. What's the status of the war? As Israel's defense minister has announced, there is a new phase of the war in place against uh, Hamas. Is that what's being carried out right now? Exactly. Israel is entering a new phase of this war to eliminate the threat that emanates from a terrorist organization, Hamas. And in doing that, Israel is also moving on the ground after it made sure that civilians are out of harm's way with the aim of destroying completely the infrastructure used by terrorist Hamas organization to execute and commit this atrocity that they did on October 7th. Uh, Ambassador, let me ask you about the hostages. Some 228 or 229 hostages have been taken by Hamas. What do you know, if anything, about the well-being of the hostages? And there are people in this country who have family members who are hostages or friends who are hostages. What can you say to the folks in Canada and others who are listening to this program, sometimes right around the world online? What can you say to uh, to our listeners about the well-being of the hostages? How much do you know? Um Perhaps with your permission, just to track back a little bit regarding the uh, ground offensive, I just want to put a little perspective on the proximity of the Gaza Strip to Israel. Israel is a very small country, very, very small. And so the Gaza Strip, the distance between uh, the Gaza Strip to, to Israel is just a small number of kilometers, which means that these rockets are very close to our borders, and this is why we have to go on the ground and eliminate that infrastructure. The issue of the of the hostages is, which is a war crime, as we all know, is worrying and concerning a lot of people. The Prime Minister Netanyahu just met with families and ensured them that Israel will do its utmost to bring them back home safely. We are demanding that they will be released immediately and unconditionally. We have no idea under which conditions they are held. We know that Hamas is capable of the of the worst atrocities that people can imagine, and worse than that. So we are very, very worried. And so um, we'll do everything that we can, everything in our power, to release them uh, immediately, have them released immediately, and, and uh, we demand that that will be done also unconditionally. So, obviously, the the hostages are a main concern of the IDF as they move into Gaza. And you're right. Israel, of course, you're right. Israel is a very small country. We sometimes think of geographical dimensions of this country, which is massive. But uh, not all countries are the size of Canada. So this would be a specific um, target for the IDF to locate and, and remove the hostages and uh, we're hopeful that that is going to take place quickly. Ambassador, Iran has warned Hezbollah, and Iran itself will become engaged if Iran deems this necessary. How concerned are you about that? So Iran has been the worst rogue player behind this whole 
Palestine. If we're talking about Hamas as a terrorist organization, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon, Iran is a state, a member of the United Nations, that is threatening Israel repeatedly to eliminate Israel, to wipe Israel off the map. And as you just mentioned, uh, the Supreme Leader very recently uh, said that Israel should uh, watch for Hezbollah because Iran may uh, unleash Hezbollah on Israel if whatever condition he, he named, which is less important. One thing is clear, Iran's agenda and Iran's declared state uh, aim is to eradicate Israel off the face of the earth. And so this is why when we look at this conflict, we understand that this is not just dealing with Hezbollah or with Hamas or with the local terrorist organizations. We also look at the bigger picture and we know that Iran is behind it. And therefore we call on the international community to address Iran as harshly and as strongly as possible. The coalition of countries that are standing by Israel in its fight against evil, that coalition would also make sure that Iran understands that any escalation, further escalation in this conflict will cost them dearly. And yet, uh, Ambassador Moed, as you know, the United Nations has endorsed a humanitarian truce, quote unquote, warning of additional deaths in Israel if Israel launches a full ground invasion of Gaza, which the Hamas-run Gazan Health Authority says already has placed eight thousand um, displaced, eight thousand or killed eight thousand. And there's been a strong response from Israel, and the United Nations uh, refused to endorse uh, a motion from Canada to hold Hamas responsible. So how, how do you assess the response of the international community, certainly of the United Nations? The United Nations play, plays an important role on a humanitarian basis and uh, in the Gaza Strip, and we are working together with United Nations organizations to make sure that the people of Gaza, that people who are not involved in this conflict, uh, will get the most assistance possible and that we also get the most precise information of what is going on on the ground. When we're talking about the General Assembly in New York, that's a different, completely different game. There is an automatic majority against Israel and we praise Canada for their very courageous and uh, strong uh, support in trying to amend this resolution in a way that uh, actually points the finger at Hamas, condemns the atrocities, and also um, defines Hamas as a terrorist organization. And I think that was a, a very heroic effort, which was supported by a majority of countries. Unfortunately, because of the system of the United Nations General Assembly, there needs to be a two-third majority for that to succeed. But in spite of that, I think that Canadian-led effort was very important to show, to uh, clarify to the international community how countries that fight for democracy and understand the need for Israel to defend itself against these terrorist atrocities have to act. And this is, we are, we are very, very concerned that this, these amendments were not accepted. And so we believe that this whole resolution should be entirely dropped. It will not be the first time that the United Nations came out very strongly against Israel or has singled out Israel in many ways and forms because there is an automatic majority against Israel. So the issue is that the United Nations as an organization can, be, can play an important role, but 
the fact that there is uh, this vast majority against Israel hampers the operation of that organization to assist those who are in need, which are in this case the un, uh, uninvolved citizens, Palestinians, in the Gaza Strip. Now, the um, Israeli ambassador to the United Nations has called for the UN Secretary General to step aside after his comments. So the UN is definitely not an Israel-friendly uh, body of nations. I think that uh, we, we already made it very clear that the statement that was made by the Secretary General uh, came out the wrong way and they actually pointed the finger at Israel in some way for what Hamas did, directly or indirectly. The point is that the United Nations as an organization that is there to strengthen peace and security in the world, uh, what are the results on the ground and what can the United Nations achieve? Israel believes that the United Nations can play a role, but the United Nations members have to be objective in their approach to the uh, in in, in um, mobilizing the capabilities of the United Nations. And I think that in this case, like the resolution that was just accepted, it went completely wrong and not for the first time. And we regret that. And we also denounce this because I think this is not the message that the world needs to see in the face of such atrocities. I think that all of us should stand united against that, whether we're Israelis or Arabs or Muslims or Druze or Christians or Canadian or European or whatever, or African. This is the time to stand up against it. Yeah, it's I, it's inconceivable to me that people can just set aside the horrific events of October the 7th and express support for the terrorists and uh, the, the killers, the rapists, the kidnappers who committed these acts of atrocity. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you've been in this country as ambassador for some weeks now, and I thank you. This is your third appearance on this program since the 7th of October, and I thank you for that. What is your sense, though, of uh, anti-Semitism and pro-Hamas sentiment in Canada? There are demonstrations in Canada today in our largest city of Toronto. There will be pro-Hamas uh, demonstrations, also pro-Israeli demonstrations. What's your sense of the level of support for Israel from the greater Canadian population? I think the support for Israel is very big, and I think, and I feel that on a daily basis, and uh, I think this is not just because uh, people uh, understand that uh, Israel needs support right now, it's because people realize that it's actually a fight for humanity. This war is against those who defy human values. And so I'm not sure that people who go to demonstrate for a Palestinian cause understand that they are actually supporting those vile, cruel, monstrous terrorists that rip people's eyes out and kill mothers and fathers in front of their children. I don't think that they realize that the Hamas which has, which is, the, I think, the second largest terrorist organization in terms of turnover that has $2 billion in turnover, uh, and where the, the wealth of the leaders is, is measured in the billions, people don't realize that while the Hamas is ruling the Gaza Strip, 12% of 
children die from water which is not treated properly. The money is there, the capability is there, but when water pipes that are coming in from abroad are dug out from the ground and used for rockets and replaced by much lesser quality pipes, you would not expect anything else but a higher death rate of children and other diseases. People, I'm not sure that people realize how the Hamas exploits the Palestinians. And if they build their, their headquarters underneath the place where the weakest of society are found, which is a hospital, that's the most shameful act that one can imagine. Nobody can resist that because Hamas is a violent organization that does not allow any any uh, opposition. So that's where they are. They are located under the underneath the Al Shifa Hospital in the center of Gaza, and uh, level after level, level under the ground, they have the command center. They have the munitions. That's where the terrorists that uh, committed this heinous crime in 7th October are hiding. And, and the world is silent on that. And I'm sure that people who sympathize with the Palestinians are not aware of all of that. I'm sure they're not, they're not uh, sympathizing with such practices, with such war crimes. Let's talk about the friends Israel has. And specifically, I'm looking at the United States, which has two carrier task forces in place and a third, I believe, on the way. That's a massive show of force with more than 200 fighter aircraft two of which have already struck at Iran-backed militias in Syria after U.S. military in the region suffered attacks. It very much looks like the Americans are not just presenting a show of force. It looks very much like the Americans are ready to take action on your northern border with Lebanon, if that proves necessary. I think that we realize that the broader picture is that when you have uh, a country like uh, like uh, the um, uh, Ayatollah-led regime of Iran, developed long-range missiles that go far beyond their, their range, extends way beyond Israel. You understand that such countries pose not just a local threat, but a regional, perhaps a much broader threat to world stability and economy and peace. And therefore, I think it's very wise that the United States is moving uh, forces to the neighborhood because they understand that this player needs to be deterred and uh, what Israel is doing right now with the Hamas should continue so that this Hamas will not pose the terrorist threat that they have posed in the past up until now. Ambassador Moed, in the minute and a half that we have left, what role do you believe Canada is capable of playing in this particular war and international crisis in the days and weeks and months ahead? I believe that Canada, like all democratic countries, should exploit all uh, available means to stand up against evil, to stand up for humanity, to uh, combat radicalization, uh, hate, and the spread of violence, and do whatever it can to assure that the Middle East and the rest of the world has a much more prosperous future than it has at this moment. This is the time to act. And I think this is also clear in Canada, and we also see and feel the Canadian support, as you mentioned, in the United Nations and elsewhere, and we are very grateful for that. We've heard far too much from Paul Bernardo. And he's going to be heard from again in a matter of weeks when his parole hearing starts. 
Once again, Bernardo will be in the uh, parole board office with the French and Mahaffey families and with Tim Danson, longtime lawyer for Doug and Donna French and Debbie Mahaffey. But there's also a story over the last number of days, as I'm sure you have heard, that uh, Bernardo had wanted to make a statement to media, and that didn't happen because Correctional Service Canada stepped in. And so Bernardo didn't get his chance to talk to media. His lawyer could have, I guess. And there's been some complaining that CSE didn't have any right to uh, infringe on Mr. Bernardo's rights. I'm so sick and tired of hearing about Bernardo's rights, rights to engage in the conjugal um, trailer at Kingston Prison when we asked about that, when a guard got in touch with me. CSC said, well, it's none of your business. Mr. Bernardo has his rights. Tim Danson joins us on the Roy Green Show. Tim, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, thanks what's, for having me. What's the story now behind Bernardo and his desire to issue a statement to the media shortly before his parole hearing? Well, as, as I understand it through an Access to Information Act request from a media member, um, uh, he wanted to respond to uh, what we were saying in opposition to his transfer from maximum security to medium security, and he wanted to communicate that through his uh, through his lawyer. And and you know, I can tell you, I have I have mixed feelings on this, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Of course, the families would wish that they would never hear the name Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka again. The families wish that they didn't have to go through the gut-wrenching experience of preparing every two years a victim impact statements to respond to uh, his parole hearing. And um, and I must say, just recently, he, he has, and he has the right to do this unilaterally, he's, he's now moved his, uh, his um, uh, parole hearing, which we've been preparing for, for next month, which is very significant emotionally for the families, and he's pushing it off until February. And then he could push it off again, which is just simply re-victimizing the victims. It's unfair. But having said that, um, and this is perhaps the, the irony, uh, I, there's two ironies, ironies to this. One, um, because he is Exhibit A, uh, every time he opens up his mouth at these parole hearings, uh, it, it, mili it militates strongly against him. So in that sense, in that sense uh, alone, I wouldn't mind him speaking for no other reason than I know uh, that he'll be sabotaging his own uh, argument for release. He just has that uh, uncanny ability to do that. But the other irony is, is that um, according to this uh, um, uh, access information uh, documentation that they obtained, that um, CSC um, uh, uh, kind of stepped in to prevent him or to persuade him not to make a public statement through his lawyers out of, out of uh, care uh, and sympathy for the families. And for me, that's the irony, because when it really counts, when the families have brought their own Access to Information Act request for the very documentation that Paul Bernardo relies upon to persuade the parole board to relieve him from the full consequences of his life sentence and his dangerous offender application, so he can be released on parole and be back into the community. When we wanted those documentations, and Paul Bernardo says, no, my privacy rights are more important than the victim's rights and the public's right to transparency. Uh, Corrections Canada and the Pro Board and the Government of Canada sided with uh, Paul Bernardo. Uh, likewise, when we sought the documentation that the Pro Board and Corrections must rely upon to discharge their public safety mandate, 
Uh, they said that Bernardo's privacy rights trumped those of the victims in the public interest in transparency. So, um, you know, when they say for, for this particular communication that they're concerned about the victims, when it really counts, uh, they've always taken Bernardo's side and, and not the, the victims of the public's uh, side. And that issue now is on a leave application before the Supreme Court of Canada. And of course, Corrections Canada and the Parole Board and the Government of Canada are opposing us. So we judge people by what they do, not by what they say. That's just a, a, a horrific series of points you just made. And, and the, and the um, French Mahaffey families don't seem to, to count as far as the system is concerned. They were all is, also issued by the court until you corrected things with a $4,000 fine, were they not? That's correct. I mean, again, that, that's actually a good point, Roy. Um, uh, that, yeah, even, even at the first level of, of the proceedings in the federal court, uh, we were not successful, and uh, they sought costs against the families and uh, and obtained it. Uh, and then when we were on the eve of the appeal for the uh, Federal Court of Appeal, uh, they realized that this was not going to look well in court, and they withdrew the, they said they weren't going to enforce that. So again, you know, if they if they ever do the right thing, it's because uh, we kind of hold the hold their feet to the fire. And um, and so we're, we're, we're certainly hoping that um, that the Supreme Court of Canada will grant leave and we can finally decide what kind of privacy rights um, uh, sadistic sexual murderers like uh, and psychopaths like Paul Bernardo have over victims and the public interest. Because there is nothing more fundamental to our democracy than transparency. And how can the public determine whether or not our corrections parole system is functioning properly if the critical documents that they rely upon uh, are kept secret. You couldn't do that in a trial, civil or criminal. Why, why um, and, and let, me, let me just emphasize that we do have a piece of legislation that everybody seems to, at least the government, continually ignores, which is the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights. That's a statute of the Parliament of Canada. And it itself says that all federal legislation must be interpreted in a manner that's consistent with the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights, and importantly, as a legal matter, that not that we needed this, but it, it's actually a matter of statutory law, that the corrections parole system is an integral part of our criminal justice system. So how is it that our entire criminal justice system is transparent, and then we get into our correctional parole system, and they prefer secrecy? But they always play lip service to uh, how, how open they are, but, but they're not. You know, I, I know you don't like my mentioning this, but I'm going to. Well, first of all, I don't know if you mind my mentioning that I've known you for 35 years and that we've spent much time on the air and talking off, off the air much time. But you've been the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families since the 90s. And you have represented those families with such tremendous professionalism and personal great care. And you've never billed them for one cent. So it needs to be said, Tim Danson, you're a great lawyer and an even greater human being. Well, you know, uh, thank you. I have to say that uh, in, my, in one sense, I think I'm being paid richly because I'm supporting a family and a cause uh, that needs to be fought. And that's worth more than all the money in the world. Uh, I, I, I can say it again. And you are both of those things. I admire you so much. And I'm honored to know you. Now, what is going to shock many people across this country listening to this program right now is that Paul Bernardo can make the decision as to when 
he wants a parole hearing to take place. So he doesn't want it in November. He wants it in February. So he can, he can, I, you know what, Tim? I didn't even know that. And I've been in this, around this justice system for decades now. Oh, yeah. We've had cases where they, he's put them off uh, six times. And so the families, uh, and, and we've objected to this, and this should require legislative change. I, I have even stronger views on, on people like Paul Bernardo, who fortunately represent 1% or one half percent of the criminal population or the prison population in our federal institutions. So we're talking about the exception to the rule. But once he has his first hearing uh, after 25 years, uh, and the parole board makes the findings that they do, even after 25 years, he has no insight into his crime. He talks about his crime like you and I would talk about the weather. He has no remorse. He has no empathy. The, the medical evidence against him is overwhelming. There's no cure for psychopathy. So for people like that, and I want to emphasize for these particular kind of offenders, his next parole hearing shouldn't be every two years. It should be five or seven years. Um, uh, but then what he, you know, every two years he has a hearing. And then he can keep putting it off. So it's like an emotional yo-yo for the families. Like I've been engaging them recently to get ready for this November parole hearing. And as I said, it's very difficult for the families. It brings everything back. They're there to defend the memories of their daughters and to have justice and make sure that Paul Bernardo doesn't get a free ride at his parole hearing and doesn't hear the voice of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey and the victims. And then all of a sudden, you know, as, as this gut-wrenching process occurs, we, we, get a, we, we get a call saying, oh, never mind, it's going to be in February. And so then there's that big letdown, you know, the adrenaline you know, drops, and, and then they get very depressed. And then they got to get worked up again in February. And then he has the right to change it again in February. And then we even had a case when um, the French's, the Donna and Doug French were going on a vacation, which they are entitled to do. And, and it was in the month at the earmark for Paul Bernardo's uh, hearing. And I wanted assurances that it wasn't going to happen during the time of their vacation. And they wouldn't do that. They said they used their best efforts. In the end, it didn't conflict. But they don't even give the decency to the family. Uh, like we have an all-court proceeding. Okay, we're not going to schedule it during the week that you've scheduled a year ago. You're going to be on holiday. So this is the kind of insensitivity uh, that is, um, is deeply disturbing. And so the Frenches and the Mahafis have to write a brand new victim's impact statement after all this time, after the trial, after the imprisonment. They have to write a new viz uh, for the new parole hearing then. I, I, that's another one I think I didn't know, Tim. Yeah, well, they do. it, But what happens is, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, similar themes in their previous victim impact statements, and we update them. But one of the big things that we do is that we because because the only constant at these parole hearings uh, is the is the is the families uh, and myself and other parole hearings where I, I represent uh, police officers who've been murdered and the police associations are there particularly the Toronto Police Association it's part of our litigation that's before the Supreme Court of Canada and um, and we're the constant but it, with each pan, each each parole hearing you have a different composition there's a different panel members and so. In our victim impact statements, we're the ones who are sitting in the, in the hearing room, and and we're and we hear the offender changing his his evidence, uh, and the parole board's not aware of it, so they don't zero in on the questions. Which is why, as part of our our access to information act uh, request, we want uh, produced for the public and for the family, so they can do more informed victim impact statements, the transcript of what occurred at the previous hearing. We can get a transcript of any criminal civil trial. Why can't we get the transcript of a public parole hearing 
so that we can inform the parole board of this change in evidence. And quite frankly, in Paul Bernardo's case, um, last parole hearing he had, I'm going by memory, but I think it was about a 40-minute presentation that he presented. And that's why I say he was Exhibit A. But it's not just that the public has a right to hear every word that he said and would see that, um, I mean, it's just shocking what he has to say, how he sees life, but his tone of voice, because that's where you really understand that he talks about his crimes, like you and I would talk about the weather. And this is the kind of information that the public is entitled to hear uh, and come to its own evaluation when the parole board renders their decision or correction, the case management team takes a position for or against release for the, for the offender, whether or not everybody's doing uh, their job. And as long as things are done transparently, justice will more likely be done. And, um, and, and you know, we were not successful. Uh, and as I say, we have that issue now on a leave application before the Supreme Court of Canada. So hopefully, you know, we will, we will have a chance to, uh, if we get leave, to put this before the nine-judge panel of the court. So I've never asked you this question before, but it occurred to me while you were just explaining to us uh, the, what goes on in your last answer, is there any chance that Carla Homolka could be summoned to a Bernardo parole hearing? No, no, they, 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 they can't do that. Um, and, of course, that would not... Uh, you know, that would not advance anything at this point. I mean, right now they, they work on, Good. you know, the psychological, you know, profile. Uh, but, you know, one other point I wanted to make, you know, uh, Roy, if I, we have time, which is this sure. transfer from, the, from, 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 from maximum security to medium security, which we objected to. And then the uh, Corrections Canada did their, you know, I think it was a whitewash uh, internal hearing uh, uh, or investigation, I should say. And they determined that they had fully complied with the law. And I don't know if I agree with that or not, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's say they did comply with the law. They did everything right. But we have a prime minister and, and the minister and other political leaders standing up in the floor of the House of Commons and outside the House of Commons saying that that transfer was outrageous and shocking and could not be justified. So when Corrections Canada comes out with its report and says, well, we complied with the law, how can the government allow a law that they say themselves, not my words, their words, that it's shocking and unacceptable and outrageous to stand. Just change the law. It needs to be changed. I don't get it. And when the families ask me that question, and they have, Tim, how, what's the answer to this question? They said that this was outrageous and shocking, but they're not doing anything about it. And that's what brings public cynicism and disrespect towards our political system and the administration of justice. And that's, that's really uh, sad and not necessary. Yeah. It is sad, and what Bernardo, I'm I'm sure, is doing uh, now that he's in medium security in Quebec, and that's been essentially certified. He's chipping away at the option, the opportunity of obtaining incremental release from prison at some time down the road, and people laugh and scoff about that. But Tim, given the fact that first degree murderers have been paroled and are living even today, openly and freely in Canadian society. Do you have the slightest of concern that that could happen to Bernardo at some time, that he could be given at some time down the road an opportunity to leave the prison, even if it's for a couple of hours here and there? Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's an important question. I, I can say this. Um, I, I, I think that... Um, 
we don't take anything for granted. Uh, we are not complacent. Uh, we take every parole hearing seriously, and we, we put what we believe to be is the best case and the best facts forward for the parole board uh, to uh, make sure that he never gets out. And, you know, uh, I agree with, um, with, the, with the tra our trial judge, uh, Chief Justice Lesage, uh, when he declared Paul Magder a dangerous offender, he said, among many uh, other things, that you, you, you must spend the rest of your life in jail, meaning no parole. So um, my, 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 my instinct tells me that as long as we keep up the good fight, uh, he'll never get out. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think he'll get out. I think he's in that category that is, is just um, unthinkable. Okay. Um, uh, if, 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 if he was ever released, uh, uh, to borrow a phrase from Jim Stevenson when they let uh, Joseph Federicks out, all you have to do is set your watch uh, before the next victim. Yes. And that would surely happen uh, with Paul Bernardo. Yes. So my sense is, is that he, he will not be released. But we cannot take anything for granted, and we cannot be complacent. We have to make sure we're fighting climate change in ways that supports all Canadians. So that is why today we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch heat pumps. You know, it doesn't matter how many times I hear him say that. I feel my nose growing larger. <laughs> so if you really want to help Canadians, then do away with the carbon tax entirely. But that's the program of the other guy by the name of Polyev. So we're going... <laughs> We're, we're going to eliminate the carbon tax on heating oil in certain parts of the country where we could get clobbered in the next election, and it looks like we will be where we always counted on seats, namely Atlantic Canada, where they have 32 seats and we count on all of them. So what we're going to try to do, particularly after all four premiers sent me a letter and said, hey, get rid of the carbon tax, we're going to... Uh, come on, Mr. Trudeau. We might have been born at night but it wasn't last night. And then there's uh, one Stephen Gilbo, the Environment Minister for Canada. So the first thing I did was go to Mr. Gilbo's Twitter feed just to see what he was tweeting about this decision by Mr. Trudeau, because Mr. Gilbo, well, Mr. Gilbo um, puts stuff on social media particularly Twitter or X, with great enthusiasm. And there wasn't a single word from the environment minister. What he did do was repost statements, tweets, posts by two of his fellow cabinet ministers, but not a word, no acknowledgement of his boss, the prime minister. So you know Steve is seething. Okay. It's been too long since we've had a segment with our next three guests. They're not guests, they're part of the family. Catherine Swift, President of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal MP and seatmate to Justin Trudeau in Parliament. And Linda Leatherdale, Vice President, Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun. They are the beauties, and you know the rest of the equation. I'm the rest of it. So... Beauties, 
Hey, Roy. I don't know. Hello. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to think. I do. I do. Oh, no. Okay. Are you like the kid in the classroom, the hands up? I do. I do. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go ahead. Take your best shot. Hit me with your best shot. Pat Benatar. Go for it. Am I on? Yeah, you're on. Oh, good. Uh, Yes. I I can't. I mean, it was the most idiotic and see-through display I've ever witnessed in the past few years. I mean, it was so ridiculous to, uh, and it was so transparent that he was trying to save seats. And I'm convinced that there's nothing that's really going to save him at this point because he keeps dropping, like he goes from bad to worse to worse to worse in his judgments and how he thought. I live in in a rural community, and all I've heard is, what about us on propane, you know, and some places have natural gas, and they're hardworking, they're on fixed incomes, so what about us? Well, I can tell you how to fix it, move to the Atlantic provinces. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on propane, right, (laughs) so I'm not on oil. (laughs) Do you know what? And we're laughing. Michelle Simpson uh, just spoke. Michelle's the former seatmate to Mr. Trudeau in Parliament when they were in the opposition, and Mr. Trudeau would arrive, Michelle told us on numerous occasions. When it was time for question period or a vote, he'd arrive with a sheaf of papers. And Michelle initially thought that uh, Mr. Trudeau had done some homework and was ready to be uh, you know, present and accounted for with answers. But what did he do? What did he do, Michelle? Please remind us. So how are we voting on this? You don't know? Did you look at it? Did you read up? Not a chance. He was too busy looking at his newspapers that featured articles about himself. That's what he brought in, right? News articles yes, about he him. did to show me. <laughs> okay. All right. Swifty, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd never ask. Um, well, I think this should have been the content of the press conference about this. Canadians, we've lied to you for eight years. Remember that the carbon tax was going to give you back more than you paid? Oops. We lied. Remember how the environment and the economy go hand in hand? Sorry, we lied. Remember that all those green jobs that were going to pay you so much, you'd never even notice the carbon tax. Well, we lied. Remember how we said the carbon tax would never exceed uh, 50, 50 bucks per, uh, or 50 per um, for, uh, ton? Well, sorry, we lied. We're now going for 170. I, I, to me, this is a total climb down from their one of their. Well, this is their central plank as government. This is a total climb down, and they're saying basically, oh, votes are at stake. Well, <laughs> never mind, never mind. And this is just so outrageous. And you know, many critics. I was one of them, and the, but there are many out there that said the carbon tax was bad for lower income people. Well. It, this just shows we were right all along. It's not satisfying to, to say we told you so, but boy, to me, this has just undermined this entire government. Yeah. So, Linda, we're laughing, but it's decidedly unfunny. What are your thoughts? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know what my thoughts are, Roy? Come on. It's time for him to step down. This is, I mean, I don't want to say it, but it's a joke. 
And Catherine and uh, Michelle are so right on. We never should have had this carbon tax in the first place. We've been lied to. And, you know, to what, what, save how many seats in Atlantic Canada where they are popular in the rural area? Well, I don't think that's going to help you, Justin Trudeau, when you go to the polls because you're sunk. That's my comment. Well, the polling, the national polling shows that very clearly. And I think Mr. Trudeau's, and I put this on Twitter, Mr. Trudeau's pumping the brakes when the car's already off the cliff. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a very it's a very sad situation, and and it's so transparent. There wasn't anybody in this country who heard the prime minister. Can you play that clip again for me, David? Let me know when you've got it ready, David. Want to want to hear it again? Okay, go ahead. But we have to make sure we're fighting climate change in ways that supports all Canadians. So that is why. Today, we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. But they're not really giving everyone it, are they, Roy? Exactly. They're isolating it to a part of the country where uh, they're losing votes. I mean, this is the, the most stark... Uh, you know, ridiculous illustration of losing votes. Hey, any principles we have? I remember, I remember Groucho Marx used to say things like, oh, these are my principles, but if you don't like them, I have others. And uh, this, is, <laughs> this is exactly what Trudeau's doing. Remember that thing we campaigned on forever? Well, never mind. We're going to lose votes. We don't care. You know, somebody sent me an email this morning who has a, a heat pump, heating pump, in, uh, I think it's in, in Saskatchewan. And uh, the the listener who sent the email said, and I was looking for it just now. I get so many emails, I can't find it right now. But uh, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. I, uh, I can't find it. But, but essentially what he said, when it gets down to minus 15, forget about the heat pump. It's parked. Like it's EVs not working. Too, it stops. Right? It stops working. That, that's like EVs too, sadly. In a country like Canada, with big distances between destinations and very cold temperatures, uh, things like heat pumps and EVs are not very practical solutions. And and that's fine. I mean, it, that's the reality. But they should say so. They should tell the truth. And they're lying to Canadians yet again. So, Michelle, what do you think is going on? You know, well, you, I don't know how well you still know the people in the Liberal oh. Party. But what do you think is going on behind the caucus doors? Because Trudeau got into trouble with his caucus in the Niagara retreat just a few weeks ago. What do you think is going on? Because some, a lot of these MPs are going to be saying, hey, I need to hang on to my job. I like this job. It's a wonderful job. It pays well. And the pension plan is fantastic. What do you think is going on behind the uh, caucus doors? Oh, well, I, I have heard from a few. And... You can smell the desperation. And especially, it's one thing when I was elected and then the Liberals got decimated down to 35 seats. You're not in government. But when you have cabinet ministers and parliamentary secretaries, I mean, that's a huge lurch for them. And I was thinking about this and I thought, I I can't decide if Trudeau's going to, he may leave and let someone else hold this bag because he doesn't want to be viewed as a big loser, uh, not unlike uh, um, his predecessors. 
like he has too much pride. But then a part of me thinks maybe he thinks he has what it takes because he's so full of himself. So I, I don't know, but there is desperation big time. Linda. Oh, well, again, I think Canadians are fed up. I mean, we've heard it over. Lie, lie, and lie, and lie. And again, there's only like one taxpayer. We're taxed to death. Families are struggling. Um, interest rates are hurting. And, you know, go get a heat pump. Um, right. So, again, I don't know if Michelle's right that he has such a big ego. He won't step down. But, again, I say it. It's time to step down. We need fresh leadership. It takes massive goal, in my view, to step up in front of a microphone and a camera and address Canadians and say what Mr. Trudeau said yesterday and have and then to think that people are looking at and listening to him and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're with you, Mr. Prime Minister. There'll be a few, but increasingly the verdict is headed in the other direction. You know, in the in the old Roman Colosseum, when you lost it was two thumbs up, good good show, two thumbs down, goodbye. <laughs> this is two thumbs down, barbaric, although <laughs> it's tempting sometimes. But I guess I guess listen, when when I think of Trudeau, I I'm sorry. I, I when I saw his eulogy to his father, I, I remember thinking, Uh oh, I wonder if he's gonna go into politics because it was the drama, the breathy presentation, the phoniness and 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 the immense ego. And you know, when I when I he he has stood up in front of the country and said things with the SNC-Lavalin, as you may recall, that Globe and Mail story is not true, which was an absolute 100% lie. And yet he did that with a straight face. He's done that with other issues as well. Lied to Canadians with a straight face. So I, I, I think he's so deluded that, um, frankly, anything's possible. He may well stay for the next couple of years to cement his so-called legacy, but unfortunately, his legacy looks like an absolute fiasco. So, so he should go. I agree with you. I agree, Linda. He should go. But I don't know if his narcissism and ego will permit him to do that. So, so you mentioned eulogy. You know what I did a couple of days ago? You can't possibly know what I did a couple of days ago. Why do I ask that? What I did a couple of days ago, I went back and I dragged out and printed out his eulogy to Fidel Castro. Oh, man. Which oh. Was another, which was another cause celebre and had people absolutely outraged, particularly the Cuban expat population in southern Florida. And I had a member of the leader of that population on, as Trudeau called him, a leader, the Cuban who Cubans loved and will miss and whatever else he wrote I've got it just across the room and I looked at that and I thought that was the beginning of it for many people in this country that's the first inkling they had of man th 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 this, this train is not necessarily going to stay on the rails and here we are let's move on to something else so repartnering I've been trying to come to terms with that since I read it yesterday <laughs> repartnering because I've had uh, the odd occasion in my life when yeah, when repartnering became, it's just repartnering. Basically, just, the replacement for adultery see, in the woke world. Stop it now. Just <laughs> <laughs> stop it. So, <laughs> repartnering. 
Repartnering. So here's the question. I don't want to go after repartnering because I can't possibly repeat what I said to Scott Taylor, our lawyer friend, friendly lawyer friend in Langley, British Columbia. I made I had this this monologue. It just spontaneously happened, and I was afraid I wouldn't be able to stop until you guys got on. Uh, and by the way, listeners across Canada, they want me to say you guys, so don't get upset. Darn <laughs> we do. Great. Okay, so how informed should Canadians be kept about the goings-on in the Justin Trudeau-Sophie Gregoire uh, proceedings as their marriage has, is dissolving? Is it none of the Canadian public's business? Uh, is, it, is it the Canadian public's right to know what's going on? Let's go right around the, uh, the basis here. Start with you, Linda. What do you say? Well, you know, I've often said I don't want anybody in the you know bedrooms of the nation. However, when you do become public office, you are a public figure. And yeah, I, I think it's fair to know what's going on. And here's what really astonishes me, Roy. Um, the United States, I mean, come on, like Kennedy and then Jackie Onassis. And we and we heard and we knew everything going on. And that is fair game in the United States. But here in Canada, it was the National Post and a few that picked up on this and CTV. But where, why, why is this not a story? And, and here's something else for the global press that we're going on. Oh, Justin Trudeau, he's so good looking. Oh my God. And everybody around the world is going, Oh, Canada has a good looking prime minister. There hasn't really been a peep. About the fact that they're married. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but my question is, Linda, how much do people have a right to know about what's going on? Well, again, I think when you're in public and you've taken a public position, I, I think it is fair. Um, but we are so polite in Canada, and okay. I don't think that we will go after it, quite okay. honestly. Michelle, yeah. what do you say? You're a parliamentarian. What right do Canadians have? How much right do Canadians have to peek into the goings-on of the dissolution of the Trudeau-Gregoire marriage? Well, as much as I, I agree with Linda in terms of I don't think anyone should take government, anyone should be in the bedroom of anyone else. Uh, I do think that once you put yourself out there and you are at, you're being remunerated by taxpayers and you love all the glory stories, unfortunately, you've got to take the good with the bad. So you've got to take the gory stories with the glory stories. That's it. Okay. And, and, you know, that's just how I feel. Okay. Catherine, I hate to do this. 30 seconds. Oh, man, that is difficult. Um, well, I think I agree with Michelle. I think it's a tax dollar thing. I personally don't like the concept of getting into people's personal lives. But when they're living on the taxpayer and these guys re maintain separate residences, in other words, double the cost, presumably, to taxpayers for years, I suspect they've been estranged or whatever for a number of years now. This isn't a recent phenomena. It just got intolerable. And I gather this, you know, I gather her um, obviously having a relationship relationship repartnered with this doctor in Ottawa, as it's been advertised, uh, finally sealed the deal that they had to admit it publicly. But okay. I remember when people criticized go. Harper Catherine. and Maureen <laughs> Harper. And there was Catherine, no I, Catherine, I said 30 seconds, not 30 know. minutes. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> I always push the envelope. Oh, you guys, you're oh. too much. Thank you so much. You need to be a little more opinionated next time, okay? I know. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, beauties. <laughs> Thank Talk you. to you soon. I found out a new word. 
just yesterday. And the word is repartnered. I'd never heard that before. I'd heard of people separating. I'd heard of people divorcing. I'd heard of people remarrying. I'd heard everything I thought, and then I heard the word repartnered. <laughs> Let's talk to our guest about that and the story behind the word repartnered. And the story is that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau has repartnered. And uh, that is because the now estranged oh, former, no, estranged wife, still the wife of the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, apparently has a new partner in her life, hence repartnered. And that new partner, the repartnered partner, is in a legal case in court with his former partner. Trying to think of what the term would be for that, the new one, the new term. And the ex-wife, former wife, former spouse, is challenging her former husband, the repartment partner, in, in court. Are you laughing, Scott? <laughs> you need a program to keep How up. How am I doing? Right? How am <laughs> yeah, I doing, you're Scott? Doing well. You're doing How well. How am I doing? Okay, let me, I'm not finished. So the former spouse is in court challenging her former spouse, the repartnered partner of Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, and I'm not sure whether it's Trudeau anymore or not. Anyway, so the the ex-wife is concerned about the security of her kids, too much attention being paid to the children, if there's a security detail around the former prime minister's wife, and she's concerned about uh, what's been said in, in court and what was supposed to be happening with her kids. It's becoming extremely confusing. So, uh, first of all, Scott, had you heard the term repartnered before, well, uh, or is that a new one on you? No, no, I have to say, Roy, that... Uh there's no legal definition that I'm aware of that says repartnering, and then they have a picture of Sophie Gregoire in the in the dictionary, or in any legal any legal terminology whatsoever. Apparently, the whole repartnering comes from the fact that unmarked RCMP cars are outside the condominium where the good doctor lives, and apparently. The the suggestion or the allegation is that the only reason that the RCMP cars are unmarked cars are parked outside the the good doctor's condominium is the fact that maybe uh, Sophie is 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 there with the good doctor. So that again, she hasn't been named in any of the material that Anna, who's that's the name of the uh, the lady who's married to the doctor. Uh, there's no specific name, just a high profile individual, and everyone else basically says it must be her, must be Sophie. But what's kind of missing? A couple things that are missing. The doctor separated apparently in 2020, moved into his condo in 2021, and now, and, and we don't know how long this repartnering, apparent repartnering has taken place. Because remember, Justin and Sophie apparently separated long before the separation agreement. Everyone heard about the separation agreement. Everyone's going, holy smokes. This just happened. Well, apparently, they separated, you know, many months before the actual agreement happened. So, but in any situation like this, regardless of what your political affiliations are, it's just, it's a sad story for the children. It's, it's yeah. the children who ultimately yeah. suffer in these, yes, these situations. Yes, you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau has a 16-year-old, I think, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. And there's a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's also a 9-year-old. Yes, there is. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the child that I would have the greatest concern for. And that child is the one, you would know better than I, because you are in court handling very difficult divorce cases on a regular well, basis. But, that, but the nine-year-old is the one well, I'm concerned about, Scott. Well, well and the thing, is, the, the thing is, Anna, who, remember, the doctor and Anna have two children. We don't know if they're boy, girl, what their genders are. We don't know what their ages are. But what, what Anna is, is trying to do is to keep those children away from Sophie. In other words, she's saying to her ex-husband, the doctor, you can obviously see Sophie, but you are not to allow our children to have a relationship with this woman. And this is a potential stepchildren to her children. So she's she, she sort of drawn the line and said, I don't want this to happen. And she's using security and privacy as two reasons. And that would mean every celebrity divorce, every child in a relationship would not be able to establish a new relationship because of all the celebrity and all the, the publicity, which is so that's that, that's the sad part. So and we don't know, Roy, whether her two children have already developed a relationship with with, with um, Sophie Gregoire. We don't know uh, what the, what the state of that is. But she's claiming that she had this agreement with her, the good doctor that he said he wasn't going to permit that contact from happening. So, that's what so you, I'm that's sure, though, I'm sure, that. Scott, I'm sure, though, that in your many years of experience dealing with family <laughs> law and, and, and uh, divorce cases, you've run into this before where one spouse doesn't want the children to have a relationship <laughs> with, the, yeah. with, the, with the old yeah. spouse's new partner, repartner. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, no, that's, uh, this is not unusual or exceptional under any circumstances. But, How does it, so but let, me ask you, let me ask you this. Yeah. How, yeah. Is there a template? How yeah. do these yeah. things usually get yeah. resolved yeah. before the oh. judge? Okay, a couple, a couple of things to know about that number one, the court, the, the judge, and the court needs to absolutely prioritize what's in the best interests of the children. And you're going, so it's not the best interest of of any parent or any adult. It's the best interest of the child. That takes priority. So the judge has to look at all the various factors. For example, if the children are of an age where they can sort of say, look, this is what I would like. The children's wishes need to be taken into consideration. And what about the child's relationship with this other person? That's taken into consideration. And what about the ability of the person to take care of those children? That, that's taken into consideration. There's a whole range of factors, but it's not the best interests of, of, of the spouses that's important. It's only the children. And now we, there's two children. We don't know how old they are. They're probably not very old. No, I don't think they're very old, um, but nothing about the children themselves. And again, will the court look to see what those children want? Well, I don't know whether they have a relationship with Ms. Gregoire already. Do they even know about her? And, and what's that going to be like? Because if it's a permanent relationship, if they're saying that the, Ms. Gregoire has repartnered, using their terminology, with this doctor, well, then it would take, I think, a massive uh, uh, effort on anyone's part to say it's not in the best interest of these two children to have a relationship with their, their new stepmom. I mean, it, 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 to me, it, it, it's a, but, but this, you know, Roy, this does happen for any one of a number of reasons, but it's the children who end up suffering. Yeah. So this is my next question. I wasn't trying to make fun of the 
of Sophie Gregoire or the good doctor. No. But it's the term repartner which led me on that wild goose, goose chase. By the way, all my listeners heard so far is I'm talking to somebody named Scott. So, so <laughs> <laughs> let me be a little more, let me be a little more precise here. My guest is Vancouver family lawyer and media commentator, Scott Taylor. Of the Taylor Law Group, actually, you're not you're not in Vancouver directly, are you? No, I, I'm. I know my office is in, in Langley, just out of just outside of Vancouver. <laughs> okay, so it's Scott Taylor, the family lawyer from Langley, British Columbia. I'm talking to very good lawyer. Oh, well, thank you. Thank uh, so, you, Roy. Well, you are. Uh, and you've handled some quite challenging cases, and we've talked uh. about them on this program. So let me ask you this then. Sure. sure. Do you believe? But given the celebrity status of Sophie Gregoire Brackett's Trudeau, mm-hmm. yep. do you believe that this particular case will be handled as any other case would be handled before family court? Or will it be handled differently? Will it be handled more expeditiously than other cases simply because of the <laughs> principles involved and because of the notoriety of the case? Well, well, well it, it'll be, I, I don't know how expeditiously it will be handled, but I, I can guarantee it will be handled as privately as possible. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's, there's various um, non-court related means to resolve disputes, family issues that don't require going to court. So if, if, if I was in any way involved, which I'm not, is, is there a, there's a process called mediation. In other words, get everybody in the room, or maybe not in the same room, but in different rooms, you can mediate it through a private process. So there's no, it's confidential. It's strictly, uh, uh, again, secret, confidential, and you hammer out a deal. That's that's the way to do it, and you don't have to file. You don't have to file that deal, that agreement. That's just a, a private arrangement. It's not going to be filed in court necessarily, and yeah, you try and resolve it. Scott, let me ask you this: But hasn't uh, Anna, as you call her, yeah, she's 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 going for divorce. She's going for Anna divorce. Lamont, uh, right? Yeah, yep. she yep. she has requested a court order. Yes. To 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 make sure the privacy and protection of her two <laughs> oh, yeah. children are, oh, are, are yep. assured. So so Scott, she's already in court, isn't she? Well, well, she is. I, I'm I'm just making some suggestions to, to to try and kind of dampen down the 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 contentious issues in this matter for everybody's sake. Because you know, Scott, these huh. these cases have a history of feeding on themselves and becoming far bigger than they need to be simply because of the principles involved. Make it a bigger story, so everybody says, "Oh, there's a lot of smoke here. Let's check the fire." Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you see unmarked RCMP vehicles outside somebody's place, uh, you're going to jump to assumptions right off the bat. So this is going to remain a high-profile matter until it gets resolved. How long it's going to take resolved? It shouldn't put it this way. It shouldn't take any quicker than any other family case because when it involves children, all children are equal. There are no uh, you know, preferences provided to children be- just because they happen to be children of a of a celebrity or high profile individual, as, as the case may be. So, but he- he- here's where things are going to get really contentious, right? Because there was some discussion that the mother of these two children might decide to go back to Argentina <laughs> with the kids. And well, that, that would do it. That that would that would that would rise that it would raise 
rise to a, at a whole different a whole different level. I don't think she's going to be successful with this application that apparently she's bringing to keep her husband from introducing these uh, these these you know their children to yeah. to uh, to Sophie. And if they're repartnered. How do you do that? <laughs> how do you- now it's it's become a word that's commonplace in our language. Scott, Scott, stop, <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah. I have to ask him one last question. Yeah, yeah, sure. Does the prime minister get pulled into this issue, whether he wants to be or not? He is, I am sure, thankfully removed as far as possible from anything uh, involving this. I mean, these are, remember, his kids are indirectly involved in this whole affair. His kids are going to be impacted by ever by whatever happens with their mother and this other individual. So has he heard about it? Is he aware of it? Is it, is it oh, troubling to so. him? I would think, you know what, when he's not otherwise governing the country, I'm sure he's he's concerned about this, you know. Okay. And again, okay. it's uh, it's all about the kids. Thank you. He's, that's what he does. A eh? govern the country. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> I always appreciate the commentary, the uh, conversations. Thank you, my friend. Good you talk. You're very welcome. Scott. Take care, right? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.